So Brent and I have been gone for two weeks back in Indiana, back in Illinois, um, visiting our families for the holidays. And I just want to apologize for apparently bringing some weather back south. Um, you ordered this one? Oh, never mind. Not my fault. Um, Mike ordered the snow, so if you've got issues, he's your man. You guys might want to talk after church. All right. Um, So we're going to be going through a lot um, today. We're going to be back in Matthew 14. What I want to do is I just want to read all the verses right now. Unfortunately, with the amount of verses that we're going to be going through today, I was totally planning to have them up on the screens today. Didn't happen, so I hope you have your Bibles. If you don't, Joe will be glad to give you one. Just raise your hand. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read Matthew 14, 13 through 33. I'll give you a second to flip there, since as I see Andy's iPad turning on and everything. The slowest? I bet paper copies might have beat you there. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and read, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Okay, so there is so much here. There is so much in these two passages that I think we could spend hours and hours on. Um, but what I'm going to do is kind of focus on one theme that I think that is consistent with both passages. That we're going to see that Jesus is revealing more and more about who he is and more and more about how we are to respond 
to who he is. And the fact that these two things happen consecutively, these two things happen one after another. The second section starts, immediately he made the disciples go. So we're going to see that that is immediately following this. If you remember in Matthew, we've talked a couple times about, it goes back and forth, teaching. We see Jesus teaching. We see Jesus is performing miracles. We see um, this back and forth. And in, verse tw- in chapter 12, we saw that Jesus healed. And then he gave some very difficult teachings on the times of Jonah. We saw the signs of Jonah. And then we saw there was blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And then we moved into chapter 13. And Jesus was teaching in parables. Jesus was teaching the crowds in these parables, but then taking the disciples aside and teaching them exactly what he was talking about. I don't know like the exact time frame of Matthew 13. As I read it, it seems like it took place over one day. Um, that's my opinion there. It's kind of what it seems like. But then Jesus immediately leaves the area because Nazareth, it says that he, was una- he did not perform signs there because of their unbelief. And then we move into 14. And Tanner mentioned last week that most of 14 is actually a flashback of Herod having this little flashback about John the Baptist. So I'm going to read 14, verse 1 and 2. It says, At that time, this is from last week, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And then the rest of it, you kind of see Herod kind of looking back to how um, when he had um, kind of ushered in that, that beheading and everything. So what we're picking up in 13, it's right after that. That Jesus heard that Herod had heard about Jesus. That he heard about this fame of Jesus. And then Jesus leaves the area. He says he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him there on foot. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he began, and he, wait, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So, Jesus was not like retreating away from, he wasn't afraid that he was going to be just like Herod and be beheaded or anything, but being as though this, Jesus knew this was not his time. He knew that it was not his time for the cross. He withdrew from the area. But what we see is, we've seen this before about Jesus' compassion. In Matthew 4 and Matthew 9, we saw that Jesus continually had compassion on the crowds. Because, not only for their physical state, not only because they were diseased, not only because they were lame or they were blind or because they were deaf, but he had compassion on them because of their spiritual state. Eventually going in, um, he would actually weep over Jerusalem. He would weep over them. Not just feel bad for, not just feel sorry for, but he would weep over them. Because he continually said, they're lost. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And this continually led to him having compassion. But you see that, I've read anywhere, in talking about this crowd, we see 5,000 men, not including the women and children. I've heard people say, oh, this was 10,000. Oh, this was 20,000. Oh, this was 25,000. 25 seemed to be the biggest number that I found of people, this guesstimate, based on the family structures at the time and who would have been rushing out to see Jesus. We'll say it'd be a safe number. 15,000 people. That's a guess. I don't know. Um, 
We see these people actually beat Jesus to where he was going. As he got off the boat, the crowds were there to meet them. And Jesus was withdrawing. Trying to, he said to be alone. He would have been with his disciples. I don't know if he was taking time to, um, to teach them. seems like a lot just happened in a short amount of time. And Jesus continually sought time to be alone with his disciples. But when there was people with a need, when these people were there, Jesus postponed this. Jesus postponed his rest, postponed his time alone, postponed these kind of things. When there was a need. And I just try to imagine this amount of people, 15,000 people. Where I'm from in Illinois, you would have had to combine about 15 towns to get 15,000 people. Not even joking. My school district was like seven towns, and my town was the biggest of 2,000. So I just this amount of people, granted, it's like, what, a fourth of Johnson City-ish? Ish? 60? That's a fourth, right? Okay. Um, but it's a massive amount of people that are coming to him with needs. And Jesus continually calls people out for their wrong motives. He, he left Nazareth because they weren't after him for the right thing. They weren't after him because he was the Messiah. People were continually after him because of what he could offer them. That he could heal them. People were continually after him for the wrong motives. And I think that's something huge here. Because Jesus healed often in spite of people's motives. In spite of him them being after the, the right thing. And I think there's a small, difficult part of application here. Because we have people all over the world who come to church for the, for, with, with the wrong motives. It, it's coming for, what can the church do for me? What can Jesus do for me? What can people in the church do for me? And I think a couple, a couple things. One, I think we need to guard ourselves against having that motive, against coming for, what can Jesus do for me? What, how, how can I benefit from this? But the bigger thing, I think, is that Jesus had compassion in spite of the motives. Jesus didn't say, oh, well, their motives are wrong. I'm not going to have compassion on them. Because I think regardless of the motives, Jesus had compassion. And it's not our job to judge that motive of the people. That, that, that part's not our role. Because if we're truly following Jesus, if we're truly seeking to follow Jesus, then our compassion cannot be defined by people coming with the right reasons. Because that's not the kind of compassion that Jesus modeled. So I'm going to get in, um, I'm going to read 15 through 17. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. It's kind of hard to fault the disciples for this, um, for looking at this logistically. 
And, and what I saw, what I read at least, said that the towns that were surrounding there it was a desolate place. So the towns surrounding them couldn't have even handled them if the, they would have gone to the towns to look for food. Once again, from my mindset of um, small town Illinois, there's not a town within my school district, we'll say, that could have handled that many people coming to eat. The grocery store, the grocery store could not have handled it. The Dollar General couldn't have handled it. We have a subway now. The subway could not have handled it. Like, there's nowhere that could have handled this many people coming to eat, look for food. So that was even if they would have, even if they would have sent them away. But what, that, that seems to make sense for the disciples. The fact that, let's send them away, that part seems to make sense to them. But what does Jesus say? I'm all over the place here. He says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. 15,000, 20,000, you give them something to eat. The disciples realized that this was not something they could do. The disciples realized this was not something that they could do. And I think that's exactly half of what Jesus was teaching. I think that's what he's trying to show them. You cannot do this. There's no way. You do not have the resources, the ability to do this. But that's only half. But that's the only part that the disciples seem to get. Because although they were a large group of them were fishermen, that math does not add up. They would have been able to figure that out real fast. But the math doesn't add up. The fish and the loaves they had doesn't add up. Because I think Jesus was saying that you can't do it, but I want you to realize who can. But that's not where the disciples went with it. Because the other half, the half was that they couldn't, but the half that he was wanting them to get was that he could. That God, the Son of God, the one who can, was standing right next to them. By this time, we've talked about this a couple of weeks here, but the disciples would have seen Jesus healing disease. He would have seen him, they would have seen him giving sight to the blind. They would have seen him allowing the deaf to hear. He's raised a girl from the dead. He's caused the lame to walk. He's calmed a storm. And that same guy, Jesus, is standing right next to them. And yet, their eyes are on the little bit of food. Their eyes are on the size of the crowd. Their eyes are not on Jesus. And I think, as I was looking through things this week, a couple of verses just in the, going forward in, in, in John. Actually, John starts out this way. He says, all things were made through Jesus. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Colossians 1 says that all things were created through him and for him. That is the Jesus that is standing right next to the disciples when they're seeing the size of the crowd. I'm going to get better at blocking this out. Um, for some reason, the disciples were more in awe of 
the size of the crowd. They're more in awe of the little bit of food than they were in awe of Jesus. And they had seen him. They had seen him do all these things. And yet, they weren't looking to Jesus. If you have your Bibles open, flip to John chapter 2 just for a second. What I want to do is point out a contrasting example. A different response to a problem. John chapter 2. Jesus, his mother, his disciples at a wedding. Seemingly normal wedding guest. I'm going to pick up in verse 3. It says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Number one, I'm not going to get into the whole calling your mother woman. Um, I'd say for most of us, it's probably a bad idea. Tanner, I think you might. Um, but I just, that's usually not a good thing to refer to your mother as. Um, but we're not Jesus, so we're not going to get into that. But do you, see how, do you see Mary's response to this? Do you see, it's almost like she's like, Jesus, Jesus, like you can do it. Jesus, I know that you can fix that problem, that the wine issue is not really a thing, but she knows who Jesus is. She knows that he's the Son of God. She knows that he's the Messiah. She knows that he has the power to do that. She assumes that, yeah, she, because she knows, she assumes that he can do that. Because the disciples, if they had remembered this, if they had been there, which they were, they should have realized that that is the same Jesus who was right next to them when they saw the only a little bit of food in the large multitude of people. I read something this week that I thought was really good. Um, first of all, this is not something Jesus said. Um, I'm not pretending that it is. But I think this is a really a lesson that Jesus would have been teaching his disciples here. That I, he says, this is him talking to disciples, or would have been him talking to disciples. I knew that you did not have sufficient food or money to feed the people. And I knew that you had no way of getting it. I never expected you to feed them from your own resources or by your own power. In asking you to feed them, I was asking you to trust me. Without having to tell you, I was giving you the opportunity to bring to me what little you had and to trust me for the, for the rest. But his disciples weren't getting this. They were focusing on the food in front of them and the people in front of them. Because I, th I don't think the focus here is on the food. I don't think the focus is on the crowds. I think the focus is on Jesus teaching his disciples about who he is. About, what, about the power that he holds, that he is the Son of God. But they don't get it. They don't get it. The disciples continually had this problem of focusing on their own inadequacies, on their own shortcomings, and not seeing the God, Jesus, who was standing right next to them. It sounds a lot like Moses 
as he approached God at the burning bush, 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 bush. Sorry. What, 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 was, what was he concerned about? He was concerned that he was slow in speech. He was concerned that he couldn't speak right. And yet he wasn't concerned. He wasn't in awe of the power of the God that he was going to speak for. He, for some reason, thought that God wouldn't be able to work through him because of his inadequacies. Moses only saw the first part of that equation that says that you can't do it. We've seen the compassion of Jesus. We've seen the provision of Jesus. We've seen the power that he has. But we see Jesus giving his disciples another lesson on who he is. You know, this is the only miracle that is in all four Gospels, um, other than the resurrection. But it's kind of the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry on earth. It's kind of the pinnacle where actually we see that in the account in John 6, that he left the area because he thought they were about to try to make him king. After this, Jesus withdraws from them because he's, he senses they're going to try to make him king. But again, we've said that they're after, they're after the wrong kind of king. But we're reading through this. The disciples don't quite get it yet. They don't quite get it. And Jesus is continually on a path um, to Jerusalem. And we're going to see that more and more in the upcoming weeks. Let's keep going in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went upon the mountain by himself to pray. But when evening came, he was there alone. So all this thing, over the course of this day, a lot had happened. He had tried to get away at first, and the crowds followed him. And so he, he, he sends the disciples away. He dismisses the crowd. He goes alone to pray. I sometimes wonder what a prayer between Jesus and the Father would have sounded like. I mean, we get, we get some examples of this, uh, but it's just thinking about God, thinking about Jesus, God incarnate, the Son of God, constantly in communication, constantly in prayer to the Father. It, thinking about how that would have sounded, thinking about how Jesus would have been praying to the Father, it can, it's overwhelming to think about for me, but... I think the emphasis on prayer here cannot be understated. Because he's continually on this road that, that ends in the cross. So he's on this road. I think we said from way back in Matthew that Jesus, that's kind of where he's set. He's on this path leading, leading there. And yet he's constantly in communication. He's constantly in communion with God. And that he took time away to spend with the Father. We could talk for a whole long time about um, the importance of getting alone to pray, the, the importance of all these things. And I think prayer night was a really, I was, not that I was here, but the prayer night, having prayer night is an awesome example of this, that taking time alone 
praying, relying on God to work because we are totally incapable. But the need for this, if it was the need for Jesus, if Jesus prayed to the Father, if he was connected this way, how much more should we? Let's keep going. Verse 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So these disciples, they've had a long day as well. Um, Jesus sends them out. The, the fourth watch of the night apparently would have been about th- between 3 and 6 a.m. So they've been out on the boat all night. Seven, ten hours, something like that. I, it d- depends on when exactly they left. But so they're out on the boat. They're, they're weary. They're trying to get where they're going. It says the, the boat is a long way from the shore at this point. And they see this figure walking. I don't think it would have been my first assumption to assume, oh, that must be Jesus coming out to us. But then what does Jesus say? I think this is huge. Jesus responds to them by saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Back to Moses, back to the burning burning bush. When Moses is saying, who should I say is sending me? Who should I say is in Egypt? Who, who, who should I say God says, I am who I am. That's what you're to say. That's what he tells Moses. I am who I am. Looking at the translation, looking looking at this, this is the, it is I. This is Jesus saying, I am God. It is I. The one you've been walking with, the one you've been seeing do these miracles. It is I. And I think this is huge. And we're going to see the disciples start to get it. We're going to see them slowly start to get it. And then we get to the part where Peter does something crazy. If you read through all the Gospels, through Acts, there's, I don't think there's another disciple that you would say was going to do something like this. But look what Peter says. He says, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Just to try to picture this is crazy. Trying to imagine the amount of faith it would have taken Peter to say this is crazy. Like, I think Peter displays here quite possibly the most amount of faith that we've seen so far. Of saying, Jesus, if that's you, since that's you out there, tell me to come to you. Jesus says, all right, come on. I tried tried to imagine this week what would have been going through Peter's mind as he's taken those first couple steps. Never been there. I don't know. Am I dreaming? Am I alive? What is going on? And he displays this crazy amount of faith. 
But all of a sudden, what, what was this, this huge amount of faith, all of a sudden what was this quickly turns into quite the opposite. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? As soon as he took his eyes off of Jesus and started looking at everything else, he went, he went back to that, I can't do this. That first part of the equation, I can't do this. And he started to sink. But Peter, was, was Peter called out for, being, for having little faith? Was he called out for doubting? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. But he also got to experience Jesus in this moment in a way that the disciples hadn't that the others hadn't, because they didn't get out of the boat. Peter experienced him. Peter experienced Jesus. Peter experienced being saved in a different way than the other disciples would have. But he got out of the boat. Even if it was just for a brief second, for a moment, he got past just that first part of the equation that we're talking about. Just for a moment, he got out of that, I can't do this, and realized that if I'm walking towards Jesus, Jesus told me I can do it, he was doing it. But here's the big thing. He's saying that Jesus is taking time to teach his disciples. That we see this, it's more, it's, more, it's more than just about the crowds. It's more than just about the food. It's more than just about the water or the storm. But it's Jesus teaching his disciples about who he is. And look at verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. These disciples have been with Jesus for a while now. We've said that. They've seen him do miracles. They've seen him heal. They've seen him teach. They've seen him raise from the dead. They've seen him raise others from the dead. And I want to flip back to Matthew 8. You can flip there if you want. Matthew 8, we see a very similar example to what we see here of Jesus in the boat with his disciples. He's sleeping, they're freaking out about the storm. And he says to them in verse 26, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? You see, you see that they ask a question, Who is this? What kind of man is this, that the wind and the seas obey him? But then in 14, what is their response? Truly, you are the Son of God. And they, it says they worshipped. They get it. 
Do you see, do you see the growth? Do you see the, what man is this that's doing all these amazing things? The crowds were getting that. The multitudes of people were getting that. What kind of man is this? Who's doing all these things? We, we like the kind of things he's doing. But most of them weren't getting the, but this is God. This is the Son of God. And I think that is where we have to get. It's not just about the feeding of the 5,000. It's not just about the fact that Jesus walked on water. It's the fact that they got to a place where they realized that this is the Son of God, and they worshiped. I, re- I talked a little bit about, for, about Colossians 1 earlier. But Jesus was continually to teach in a way that was telling the disciples, that was telling the people that it was so much more than just about the Old Testament law. It was so much more. He didn't want just that God was not after external actions. He was not after chain, merely just a change of behavior. But he was continually after their heart. And then he was continually revealing that he was God. Paul wouldn't have been in the picture at this point. Um, but I want to read from Colossians 1. Because this is, the, this is what Jesus was teaching about. This is what he was revealing about himself. About who he was. And we see the disciples starting to get it. Verse 15 in Colossians 1. It says, He is the image of the invisible God. Talking about Jesus. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We'll stop right there. This is Jesus. This is who he's revealing himself as. Like, this is me, Jesus speaking. Yes, feeding the 5,000. Yes, walking on water. Yes, pulling Peter up. Yes, doing all those things. But that is Jesus. That's who he's teaching his disciples. This is who I am. And we're going to see in a couple minutes just the importance of this. The importance of why he's teaching his disciples. But for some reason, it's that Jesus. It's that Jesus that can only be described, and it's only described because of love. But for some reason, he would be the one to die. In order to present us holy and blameless, above reproach before him. This says that Jesus went after people that were alienated. He went after people that were hostile. He went after people that were doing evil things. He went after us. 
And this doesn't make sense. There's a reason, like I just said, that Jesus continually to try to reinforce this, continually try to teach this to his disciples. Because tonight, actually, we're going to start going through Acts um, on Sunday nights. And ominous music. Pretty good time for that, actually. Um, we're, going to go, we're going to go through Acts. We're going to see the way that the disciples are so instrumental in Jesus kind of building his church. We're going to see that all throughout Acts. But if, for the, if they're going to do this, if the disciples are going to do this, they've got to get to the point and they wor- where it says, and they worshipped him. And they worshipped him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. This right here is no different than it is for us as the church, as this church. Because if we're going, we, we talk about 2 Corinthians 5, we talk about the fact that we are ambassadors for Christ. If we don't realize that Jesus is the Son of God, if we don't realize this and that doesn't lead us to worship, then I don't know what kind of ambassadors we are. Because we have to realize, we have to get to a point where we realize that this is who Jesus is. That he wasn't one just to perform miracles. He wasn't one just to do amazing things like feeding 5,000 people. But he was one, just like it says in 1 Corinthians 1. For in him was the, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then it goes on to say who we are. And to you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above, above reproach. Our worship has to come from this. Our worship has to come from realizing who Jesus is. If our worship is for some other reason, if our worship is just because of the rhythm of the music, if our worship is just because we like the setting, if our worship is just because the preacher was fun to listen to, then that's not the right kind of worship. Our worship is in response to who Jesus is. And we have to realize that Jesus is worth surrendering our lives to. We have to realize that Jesus is worth singing to. We have to realize that Jesus is worth absolutely everything and more that we can give. And that Jesus died so that we might be reconciled to God. But that should lead to worship. That's something big. And I want us to be there. I want our worship to be because of who Jesus is. Let's pray.